There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. On Jive Live, it's nice to see Ludmilla Yamalova, uh, who's hiding behind a screen. Actually, I have to kind of peer around at you. Nice I've to have shrunk. you back. I've shrunk. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Great to be back. <laughs> you, you really have. Or you've made me shrink. I think <laughs> you've lowered my seat all the way to yeah, the we did. floor. It's, it's a feeling of power, you know. Yes, I know you like you like to look down on me. Yeah, right. Uh, good to have you here. Now, look, the uh, I wanted to start today with excise tax because we just had details through. This is the UAE Ministry of Finance. Press release is Haina Sheikh Hamdan bin Rashid Al Maktoum. According to him, the new law will help us build a healthier and safer society. The tax is set to discourage the consumption of products that negatively impact the environment and, more importantly, people's health. Now, the triumvirate here, I suppose, that are really being looked at most closely, and there are other uh, items, but cigarettes, soft drinks, and uh, also energy drinks. Yes, and fast foods. And fast foods, that's right. Okay, so four, more than a try. But what, what's the law? Any surprises in this? I mean, we knew this was coming, obviously. There's no great surprise in that. But uh, your thoughts, just overall? Uh, not, not at all. It was not a surprising move. The excise tax has been has been um, announced a while back along with the VAT, if not even earlier. We just have not seen the law itself memorializing exactly how it's going to look. But um, if you just compare other other countries and other jurisdictions, excise tax has existed in other countries much longer than it has in the UAE. In fact, and that was one of, one of the appealing things about the UAE shopping still for a lot of Europeans, for example, is that they would come here and then buy those products because they were a lot cheaper uh, than they are in Europe. Uh, so therefore, this is not an unex- unexpected move. And generally speaking, uh, uh, the excise tax refers to, I guess, for lack of a better phrase or for a simpler phrase, a sin tax, and mm. that is a tax on products that are generally viewed to be uh, disadvantages uh, to society, such as you know, products that are not good for our health. Uh, and what exactly will be the range of products that we included is yet to be decided. So there is this, uh, um, there's an announcement from the government, but the decree itself with all the specifics of what products will be included uh, and what rate will apply have, uh, have not yet been made published, uh, public. Um, so that's, um, that's just something that we'll continue to monitor and report as details come out. But generally speaking, it's not supposed to be more than 200% of the value or the cost of production. And also, just in more, I guess, technical uh, terms in terms of definition of excise tax, it's a tax on manufacturers versus consumers. And so it's the manufacturers that are being charged this this tax. But uh, just as in the VAT, uh, manufacturers will pass on that tax to consumers. And and then that's how the products on all the goods will become more expensive. And it's ultimately the consumers who will will be paying uh, for for that additional cost. All we know is that at the GCC, Supreme Council, of GCC ministers meeting in, it was last December, issued a resolution on excise goods, the list of excise goods, did they not? And what came from that, and this is why we've been talking about uh, cigarette taxes uh, being hiked, we've been talking about energy drinks and soft drinks, those are the three that have been explicitly mentioned, but we don't know yet what else is in there. I mean, the spec- is it speculation that fast food will be... Yeah, well, included. I mean, it's it's one of the, it's one of the typical products yeah. that is is usually covered by excise tax. And but also when you talk about fa- uh, soft drinks, what are soft drinks? You know, the definition of soft drinks varies. Yeah. So there will there's there's more le- more detail is is required to really understand which specific products will be man- uh, covered. 
Is there a legal definition of a soft drink? That I am, I, I am not an expert in soft drinks, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there is a definition somewhere. And certainly as, as, as this law takes a better shape, there will probably be a definition of soft drinks, at least in the context of excise tax. Okay, so that's federal decree law number seven of 2017. That's excise tax. And a list of what will be included that is included in that is yet to come. As per the law, I'll just quote the, the release for a moment. The excise tax rate shall be imposed on the excise goods which, along with the method of calculating the excise price, are subject to a decision by the Council of Ministers, the GCC Council of Ministers, so we've yet to find out what is in the list. And that's upon the recommendation of the Ministers uh, of Finance in the respective countries. It provides that ta- tax rates, as you said, do not exceed 200% of the excise price, the cost of manufacture, uh, as you pointed out. Um, let's very quickly talk about VAT before we go to a break, because we had the big Federal Tax Authority, the FTA conference in Abu Dhabi last week. We're all going to get used to that acronym, I think, over the coming months. It's coming in on January the 1st, of course. There's going to be a VAT session organized by the FTA at Dubai Chamber. This is tomorrow. This is at, I think it's four o'clock at the head office, just on the creek there. There's going to be one at Sharjah Chamber the uh, following day. Uh, we know that. Um, news that you've had, I don't know uh, if this is speculation, it's something that you're hearing, but you did mention the word free zones when you walked in just now. Indeed, and with just one caveat, uh, we, in the past, when we, when we have reported updates on VAT developments, we've actually, we were the listening or hearing those updates firsthand from the representatives from the um, uh, from the government this this time around we have not attended these sessions as you said um, there was one in Abu Dhabi that's the one we did not make uh, <laughs> you know, make the effort to go just because we thought there'd be one closer to home soon mm-hmm. uh, as you said uh, and there will be uh, but uh, but there have been enough statements in the press and by various respe- respectable um, representatives uh, or I guess experts if you will uh, that have have made it fairly clear that free zones, as of now, free zones are, free zones are now exempt. And that was one issue that continued to be uncertain throughout all the briefings that we attended, uh, whether free zones would be included. Obviously, by very definition of free zone, it's supposed to be sort of tax-free, and that's that's one of the integral definitions of free zone. That's why that question kept coming up. And as um, as of last briefing that we attended, uh, that question was still unanswered. Well, as a, as a result of the la- latest briefing in Abu Dhabi, apparently there has been made a, there has been a decision made regarding free zones, which would will um, keep them exempt, not 0% rated, but exempt. Now, I said, as I said, I, it's important for me to caveat that because I did not hear it as so-called from the horse's mouth just yet. We've called the FTA, which is the Federal Tax Authority, several mm-hmm. times, and they refer us to the website, and there's not um, any official information or at least updated information on the website yet. Uh, but it, enough statements have been made that made me think or believe that this is accurate. Well, and... Provided this is accurate, so what does that mean? Uh, there is a difference, just by way of reminder, when a party or is um, exempt versus uh, subject to zero percent tax. Free zones will be exempt. That means they will not be able to offset any of the input tax or VAT tax that they pay on on goods or services. Uh, being if, if free zones were subject to 0%, such as, for example, certain industries like um, uh, health industry and education industry, they're subject to 0%. That means that they don't, they cannot collect the, uh, the 5% from their consumers, but they can request a refund from the government 
uh, of the input tax that they have paid. So that's being subject to 0%. Well, free zones are not, uh, are just simply exempt, which means free zone companies, for example, will not be required to be registered as the, um, uh, as a tax, um, tax uh, entities. Uh, so, or tax person, so that's just the, the, the term of art. So therefore, all the free zone companies, they will be paying the typical VAT on everything else in the services and goods, but they will not be uh, will not um, be eligible to file r- refund forms, which was sort of one of the speculations before. So therefore, we just we those who are in the free zones, they pay, but they don't get to offset. Okay, it's worth making that distinction. There's a question in, uh, I'll just refer you to the text line. We'll come back to Phil after this. I'll just read the question here. Assuming, says Phil, non-smoker, just wondering, tobacco uh, has an excise tax applied and possibly VAT as well. How would that affect bringing tobacco back to, for example, the UK, I guess where Phil uh, is from, where there is a limit amount allowed to be brought in due to buying from a country previously selling without tax, uh, i.e. free of duty? I have a thing about that. I'm not sure if uh, it's possible to answer that at the moment. However, uh, it's a question that's well worth bringing up. If you do have a question for Ludmilla of a legal nature and there are a broad, there is an enormously broad spectrum that Ludmilla is able to address uh, on this program, text us in on 4001 or via the free app or call us on 423-1010. We're going to come back to our main topic today in a moment. Property transfers where the seller does not have a bank account here in the UAE. It's the legal hour. This is Drive Live on Dubai I 103.8. The legal hour now until 5 o'clock. Any questions that you have, there are a number in on the text now, 4001, free app, 423-1010. You can tweet or Facebook if you would like uh, as well. We'll get in touch as early as is possible. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Ludmilla Yamalava is with us from Yamalava and Plethka Legal Consultant. Talking VAT just now. We just had uh, a press release about the excise tax law, which uh, is uh, officially uh, introduced and has been decreed. Comes into uh, effect. Let's move on to our topic today, Ludmilla. Property transfers where the seller does not have a bank account in the UAE. Something you've come across... Uh, reasonably regularly, more prevalent than we may otherwise have thought. Indeed, and it seems like a very simple issue and one that would not happen very often, but it's the opposite on both fronts. It happens um, much more often than we would expect, and it happens, and it actually, it's much more complicated than we would expect. Uh, on On the surface of it, you think, well, if you don't have a bank account, what's the big deal? I have a property, I'm selling the property. It's just the absence of actual bank account in the country cannot really impede the transaction. Uh, significantly, but it actually is not so. And what complicates this further, and I'll break up this particular uh, discussion into two parts, is that often sellers who do not have bank accounts here obviously are not residents in the UAE, and as a result, they are not even here during the transaction, or they prefer not to be here during the transaction, that is when they're selling the property. So often these transactions are done by uh, their representative on the basis of power of attorney. So that complicates the issue even further. But let me start with the first part of it. Uh, So... the general principle, the general requirement as far as property transfers are concerned is for the land department to actually, that the purchase price is paid by way of a manager's check. By To all those uh, listeners who are not quite sure, not quite clear on the difference between the manager's checks and the personal check, the difference is significant because the manager's check is, per, is basically as good as cash. In order to get a manager's check, you actually have to go to, uh, to the bank. You have to have that amount of money in your account and you have to pull that account or that, that amount of money from your account in order to have the manager's check issued. So therefore, the check cannot bounce. And it's, it's good as cash, except that you don't need to carry piles of, uh, of cash uh, along with you. Whereas a personal check, a personal check cannot tell you 
you whether that person actually has money in the check at the time when they are actually exchanging it with you. And so therefore, it's not as secure. Therefore, the land department has uh, over the years implemented a requirement where the payment of the purchase price has to be done by way of a manager's check for that reason to protect the seller. Now, if a seller does not have a bank account here, you can't, this manager's check is actually not very useful because in order to cash the check, you need to have a, a bank account. So it's not you, as good as cash in that case. Is well, it? Well, 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 oh. well stated. Yes, oh, you're paying attention. <laughs> You got a brownie point, uh, but it is actually true, uh, yeah. and it's it, and it's even even if you as let's say as if you're a seller and you went by yourself and you uh, and you transferred the property, you picked up the check and you go to the bank, bank yourself with your that check, even then in that case the bank will not cash that money because well that's just the regulation the UE at present. So you really need to have a bank account here to be able to benefit from manager's check. So what does that mean for anyone who does not have a check or a bank? account here. So there have been other so-called alternatives uh, to um, the use of manager's check. And and in simple terms, the alternative is when the seller in person appears before any of the trans, uh, transfer centers and gives an undertaking of the transfer centers that they have received the payment. Well, what does that mean? So let's break that down. How can one receive a payment? Let's say, let's say it's Tim, you again, the seller, and uh, you will give an undertaking to the uh, to the transfer center that you've received the payment. That could be because, let's say, I'm your buyer. I'm giving you a personal check, or I'm giving you cash, uh, or because. Um, or, for example, by bank transfer, we agree on somehow that we will do the bank transfer. Uh, or, uh, for example, you decide that Natalie will be the third party who will who you are comfortable with accepting a manager's check. So she will take the manager's check will be issued in her name because she has a bank account and you don't. So, believe me or not, there are so many examples of exactly that where people yeah. come up with these sort of uh, machinations, uh, trying to work around the system. And the problem with each one of them is actually quite because they're very risky. So let's say if one, if you give a statement to the land department or the transfer center that you've received cash from me, then then you have to deal with that cash. And it's not easy. Being being cash rich these days is actually quite complicated. Uh, the banks are not very comfortable with uh, just the cash, piles of cash. And obviously, there are all sorts of challenges in, in moving that sort of amount of cash or any kind of amount of serious cash, even across borders. So having cash is not that simple. It's, it's, it's actually quite... Um, uh, quite difficult and quite um, complicated uh, so so that's what and, and even then even let's if you, again we're using you as an example you don't have a bank account I give you cash what do you do with that cash you cannot even you can't even put it deposit in your bank account and then transfer it over to your um, to your home country so you really need somebody else to, re, to to do that for you unless you're happy to to carry millions of dirhams in cash but remember there's millions of dirhams what dirhams, what good will dirhams do for you, for example, in the UK? So you even need to exchange it. There's that element. And it's just, and exchanging cash is not that simple. Then uh, what could be also done is, for example, you would go, instead of dealing with cash, you'll agree with Natalie that um, that you will, that you, uh, that you will, I will issue you the per- personal check. But in fact, that personal check, but we will have some sort of agreement with Natalie where she'll accept your cash uh, on, on your behalf, and then she she and you will figure out a way for her to transfer that money to you. Obviously, this is very risky. We've also seen cases where managers' checks uh, like this have been issued. For example, I will issue a check in the, ma- in the name of Natalie, managers' check. So you have the security that, in fact, I have the money, but then that money is not really in your name. It's he Natalie, doesn't know so how really much of that money I'm going to give him. 
So I might receive the manager's cheque, but who's to say if I give you 100% of it back to Well, that's the thing, and I've known you a while, so, I mean, you know, it is a different thing. But it is, uh, Fu had text in a point here, actually. I mean, this is a particular issue when the seller doesn't have a bank account here in the UAE, but the buyer does. If both parties have bank accounts, Fuad's uh, exception here is in the UK, they can confirm cash exchange there. Well, yes, but this is not easy. Okay, that's a great question. So let's let's uh, walk through that scenario. So going back to you and me. So I'm your buyer, you're the seller. We both mm. have accounts in the UK. But then you need to appear before the land department or the transfer center and and give them an undertaking that you have received cash. Now then, as far as the land department is concerned, so you have now transferred the property from you to me, but you haven't received money from me yet. If you trust me, certainly, if you trust, if, if there is that, that fundamental trust between the parties, then this is a fairly easy, um, easy problem to resolve. But if, uh, but there is, I mean, I think there are very, very few people actually that um, that should be trusted, at least to that extent. So then, what happens? You and I have to go to the UK, and I will transfer money to you then. But by the time I will not transfer money to you until I know that you have transferred the property to me. So there, if you see, there is a delay there. Do you receive? Do I send you money first before you transfer the property, or do you transfer property first before I give you the money? And there's always that issue, and that's the same issue with the bank transfer so for example I as a buyer could transfer uh, by bank transfer money to to you from the UAE to your account in the UK but how does the timing work out because as when we're standing in the in the transfer center you have to make the representation that you have received um, the the payment from me one and then you have to transfer that property to my name but you're doing that before I've transferred money to you so you see so there are a lot of risks here and so as a result there are often what happens is that people bring in third parties like Natalie for example using Natalie by by way of example that she doesn't do that for uh, for a living yet Uh, but you (laughs) might get some ideas after today's show so they will use third parties exactly to do this so for example uh, I would give my money to Natalie and then Natalie will transfer money because she has a bank account here she will transfer that money from her to you well we see these sort of requests and and these uh, scenarios quite often and to be honest with you they're very very risky you really really need to trust the person uh, uh, who who is accepting that kind of amount of cash on your behalf but there's also there are other complications let's say obviously we don't w- wish ill on anybody but let's say the person who received that money something happens to them they get sick so there's also practical issues that can come up but so just by way of uh, of, of conclusion it's it's very, very risky to be doing it like this. So if you do want to use a third party, just be very mindful and be very clear on who that party is and how you work out all the mechanics of when the money is going to transfer hands and what documents are being signed so that you have proof that that particular person is receiving money on your behalf. But it's very risky. And I tell you, we've seen a lot of, the, a lot of the cases where clients just want to give it through some parties that they don't even know about, but they have a company and somehow under the umbrella of, well, this is a company, therefore they, they're safer to... Uh, to accept money, they believe that this is a possible, though sort of a, a less risky scenario, but it is not so. It is uh, the simple fact that trust is a commodity in short supply. Indeed, and I think it always will be. Okay, more from Ludmilla Yamalova. She's here from Yamalova and Plethkot Legal Consultants. It is the legal hour. If you need a perspective legally on something, we've got lots that we need to get to uh, on this, and we'll do that in a few minutes' time. Half an hour, get your questions in as early as possible, not just limited to property. If you just want a legal perspective, Ludmilla is here to answer your questions. As I often say, free legal advice. A bit like a free lunch. I wonder if there is such a thing. Ludmilla's smiling at least.
No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live only on Dubai Eye. 103.8. It is the legal hour on the program as ever on a Monday. Legal hour on Drive Live. Just until six o'clock tonight. So any questions you have, you can get a perspective from Ludmilla Yamalova, who is our guest today. The topic that we were talking about just before the news, property transfers where the seller does not have a bank account in the UAE. You'd think it was pretty straightforward. Turns out it's not quite as straightforward. You've got to find a trusting friend called Natalie to help you with the transfer. You do. Not and the even one then to it might left. not work. <laughs> no, but we've had quite a few texts on this. There was a suggestion come in on the text from Ryan who said if Dubai wants to lead the way, they should accept Bitcoin. Now we had a little chat about this. It's quite an interesting suggestion, isn't it? It certainly is. And I know that there are a few government agencies uh, who are looking into this very, um, very idea of Bitcoin. I cannot really disclose much more than that. But other other countries seem to be uh, increasingly embracing of the idea. So I would not um, I would not be surprised if we start looking at it more seriously as well and it's just a matter of time. Do you know when somebody says I can't really disclose any more than that I just go oh tell me and I, I get <laughs> the so excitement nosy. starts yeah. to mount. It's but a it cliffhanger. Is. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, that sort of applies to you know you could even long term that could be something people could do with buying property. Use some bitcoin. You would have thought wouldn't you it would make sense. I mean yeah. why, why is it that if you if you don't have a bank account here in the UAE you can't just uh, get a bank account open. Can you not open a bank account? You could, and, and one of the other listeners actually did send a message about that very um, issue. And that's yes, and that is now uh, more possible than used to before. A few years back, it was not possible to open a bank account for anyone who was not a resident in the mm-hmm. UAE. As of the last several years, a few banks have actually been softening that requirement and are more flexible about opening bank accounts for non-residents. But it's a sort of more limited use of a bank account. So certainly that is possible. But imagine once again the the uh, effort that needs to go into that and most of the time when a person is selling property and they're not resident here it's it's for a reason that is perhaps they are divesting their interest in the UAE and they are leaving the country so therefore for them to come here and open the bank account and it does not op- it does not happen overnight it actually is a fairly involved process and um, and then having to close it it's just you know it's it's a, it's it's a, it's a cumbersome process but certainly is an option so for those who do not have Natalie as their best friend uh, though after today's show I think she could be <laughs> a very popular Inundated friend for many with friendly <laughs> yes yeah. It's the raising of the eyebrows that's creeping me out a little bit over there. Just look, look in my direction. No, there was another. There was another text on this. No name, but they've said, "Can you use an escrow account?" So maybe through a law firm. Is that something that you could do to make well, sure it's It's safe? a great question because also one of the other listeners also suggest, is asking a question whether a law firm can be used. Well, there, those are two separate questions, but they can be answered in in the same context. And that is the the I guess the more interesting question is, can one use an escrow account? Escrow account, yes, in in theory. However, we do not. The UAE currently does not have escrow accounts or escrow services uh, in the traditional and the classical sense. And that is, an escrow account usually is an independent account in into which both parties can. Um, I guess make payments and sign whatever documents they need to sign, and it's sort of, and that and the money resides with an utterly independent institution that is basically designated or licensed to to transact on uh, with these very uh, very types of activities. In the UAE today, we do not have escrow accounts. When we do hear the phrase escrow account, but it only applies in the context of off-fund properties where developers set up uh, escrow accounts for investors to um, to 
basically dedicated escrow accounts for investors to put in money for offline properties. But that's the only escrow account that exists today. So therefore, in a classical sense, beyond that, there are no escrow accounts and therefore no escrow agents that would serve that purpose. For example, in the U.S., I mean, every, all of that is down to an escrow agent. Mm. And because we don't have uh, your classical definition of escrow accounts, we don't also have... Uh, escrow agents in the classical sense and that is truly a third party that is licensed to do exactly that to to provide those kind of services so so it's it's it sounds it sounds simple but it's because of the the legalities of, um, of of that particular issue in the UAE that it's not really available to the public however could you use other parties as as so-called escrow agents yes you could law firms uh, financial advisors uh, friends like Natalie uh, who what have you so that is possible but once again uh, you have to make sure that it, it it's it's better to use a corporate than an individual for all sorts of reasons because an individual is, is obviously can, many more things can happen to their corporate. And, um, but with a corporate, once you need to do your due diligence and you need to make sure also not all corporates may actually be able to provide that kind of service. Law firms, for example, in at least those that are registered with the Dubai Legal Affairs Department can provide um, that service. But you have to be careful because the... I guess I guess the more classical definition of escrow agent is it has to truly be a third party independent from the buyer and the seller. So it could not cannot be, for example, the uh, the law firm that Tim uses as his um, as uh, as the seller. You could if the parties agree to it, but that firm obviously is not 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 independent. It's not really neutral because it's your lawyers, and therefore if there's a dispute between you and me, whose side are they going to take? They'll be forced to arbitrate. So often real estate agents have taken that who have wanted to play that role, but the, for the very same reason reason, then there are all sorts of complications and these complications have happened and we've dealt with them and they're not and they're not pretty and that is ultimately real estate agents and are forced to become basically the arbiter of who's right or wrong is it is it Tim the seller or is it Ludmila the buyer for example and that's not their role it's only for the course to decide that and often what happens and the real estate agents sit on that money while the parties are litigating that issue in court so it's just it's not we're not quite there yet as regard with regards to escrow agents but certainly if you wanted to, to, to use that service you need to make sure that you do your proper due diligence and you really understand who you're dealing with okay well Vohid texted in earlier and said let uh, people know that there are some banks that will open an account for non-resident uh, buyers sellers uh, and then he's texted back and said my land department can transfer a seller's money to his or her country account the buyer and the seller has to visit the DLD to use that service I, I haven't heard I have not heard of this before. at all, and uh, no, I, I because we we use uh, we deal with these kind of instances quite frequently, and just recently we've been dealing with the very same situation. And as far as we know, the land department will not um, d- does not play that role, does not offer that service just yet. If we if, if the listener knows any more details, we certainly would love to uh, would welcome to hear more. Okay, let's go uh, very quickly to the text line uh, NLT. This is a question that came in uh, a while ago earlier on, and it is kind of changing tax slightly. But is there a cap on the age limit, Ludmilla, to become a partner or a director in your own company in order to get a visa to stay here in the UAE? Axe, the brilliantly named Axe, is asking that. Well, being a partner and director are slightly legally two different concepts. So a partner usually refers to basically being a shareholder. Mm. As far as shareholders or owners of a company, company uh, concerned there's no age limit because ultimately what you are is you're you're an investor and so for you to ma- to maintain that uh, that corporate entity you need to be financially 
uh, financial is strong enough to basically maintain it. So therefore, there is no requirement on that particular uh, on that particular um, issue or I guess the designation. So as the owner of the company, there is no age limit. As a director of a company, if it's your own company, then again the age um, you will be you will be advised to apply for visa on the basis of being a shareholder or an owner of a company, not a director, because usually a director, the director is an employee. As, empo- as far as employees are concerned, there is an age uh, limit, and that is 65 years of age. That's the default age. However, there are ways to, re- uh, to ask for exceptions, and we see them quite frequently uh, from the authorities, and particularly the immigration authorities, if, um, if for, for those who are even older than 65, but they have to prove that ultimately their, their set of skills or s- skill set is beneficial to the country, and perhaps there are not that many um, of them available. So we have seen these exemptions be made uh, fairly routinely. Okay. Yeah, we've had a text in from Mark, different subject again. He says, what are the RDC fees to open a case for eviction? And that's of a sitting tenant. Furthermore, is there a separate fee to file a case for a non-payment of rent? So it sounds like a complicated tenant on the hands there. Uh, yes. So with RDC, the fee is 3.5% of the claimed amount. So when you are filing as a landlord, you're filing for uh, for eviction and for the non-payment of rent, you need to come up with a claimed amount. What's the value of the amount? So in your case, it will be the uh, the default, uh, the defaulting amount that the tenant owes you. So it'd be three and a half percent of that amount uh, for eviction, because you're obviously lumping it here. Uh, then you, it's, it's actually an interesting question because. If you're just filing a case for an eviction, then it's three and a half percent of the annual value of the rent. If you're doing for the uh, for so it actually is possible as I, as I think about it, it's possible that you have to pay the uh, both three and a half percent on both claims. One is for the eviction, which is three and a half percent of the value of um, the annual rent, and three and a half percent of the amount that is outstanding. But there is a cap, and I think a cap is five percent. But I can uh, clarify if it's an important issue. I can clarify this throughout by the end of the show. But there is you in in every. Uh, in every court proceedings, in court and in RDC, there's always a cap. So when we talk about three and a half percent, there's there's a cap, and I think in RDC it's five percent, oh, five thousand dirhams. Okay, we have lots of questions to get to here, including uh, asset. I can ask you this because uh, I guess the answer is going to be blood, sweat, and tears, and years of study. He says, "What does it take to become an informed person like you?" Oh, <laughs> easy. <laughs> blood, sweat, tears, grind. Yeah, you eat a lot of dirt for a very long time. <laughs> There you go. That's what it takes to become a solicitor or a lawyer. Uh, we're going to come back. And you have back. to continue to stay informed. It's just you can you can never relax. <laughs> Ludmilla Marl is here. She's our guest. Any questions for Ludmilla? We have space for two or three more. We've got a lot to get to in there next. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai I one zero three eight FM. You're listening to Drive Live. It's a legal hour. We're joined by Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Plethka. We're going to have a look at a few of the texts. Tim, you've got some ready and waiting. Uh, do you know, I wanted to bring this one up with you, Ludmilla. This is from Tariq. I and my wife are Muslims. We own property here and in the UK. We have two kids. It's like a list text here. I like this. How many wills do we need? And where can I get a will drawn up here in the UAE? Tariq's asking. Great question. I'm assuming by will you would like like to will your estate to your children as a muslim in this country you are not allowed to will any any 
of your assets to um, your family members. You can only you can only will one third of your estate with the approval of your other beneficiaries to a non to someone of a different religion. So somebody who would not normally inherit from you. So therefore, as far as the UAE is the UAE is concerned, you cannot do a will. You would be subject to Sharia. As far as your assets, in particular in the UK or wherever it is that you may hold assets otherwise are concerned, it will really be subject or up to the laws of those particular countries. In Europe, for example, there are uh, it's possible for Muslims to have a will, and as long as those jurisdictions will enforce them, then that's that's the way to do. Uh, but with regards to assets in the UAE as a Muslim, they will always be subject to Sharia, and there's no way around it. Okay, and we've had another text, and we were talking about property transfer, especially if the seller doesn't have a UAE bank account. This is sort of something we touched on, but quite a good question. They've said, I recently purchased an off-plan property, and the developer asked that I paid the first 10%, which is quite normal, but they've asked for it into their account rather than the escrow account. Can you give this person some advice? Well, on the basis of the question, it doesn't sound like this is this is legitimate or this is um, legal because developers are required to deposit all the funds into the escrow account. And from there on, they have to work with the land department or whatever other government government authorities in uh, in releasing the funds towards the towards the development. So this from the sound of the question does not sound legit. Alarm bells really for you on this one. Mm, back to the trust issue again, aren't we? That's uh, come up a couple of times today. Path texted in, and just a reminder, I suppose, Lord Miller, we talked a little bit about that earlier on. Uh, any VAT VAT on property sales, Path's asking. With regards to residential uh, properties, all residential properties for now are will be subject to 0%. So as far as residential property, whether it's sales or rentals, they will not be subject to VAT. However, Commercial properties will be subject, and that relates to uh, commercial property sales or office sales, for example, and similarly to leases or office leases. So they will be subject to 5%. There's a text here that I'm just reading through. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this one, but we'll give it a go. Um, Nas texted in and said, my employer pays some family benefits, things like air tickets based on sponsorship. Now, my husband's company have limits, so it doesn't cover all the children, but I can't sponsor the children. So is there a process in place for us to change the children's visa to her sponsorship? She says, my salary bracket is within the sponsoring requirements. If your salary bracket is within the sponsorship requirement, then you can apply for to, to sponsor your children. And it may be that we've seen this before. It may be that you have received information from the immigration authorities that as, as a mother, you were not allowed to do so. But you can always make a case because the law does allow for mothers to sponsor their children as long as they have uh, the adequate sa- salary to sponsor or to maintain or support the children. Um, so, uh, so basically, uh, my recommendation is if you have better benefits, then it certainly is possible to change. Just don't accept no for an answer because, legally speaking, it is allowed for mothers to sponsor children. Mark's texted back, Luke Miller, is there a cap on RDC fees? Mark's, uh, Mark had texted in a little bit earlier on. If I can just uh, find that text, he was saying... Uh, for eviction, yeah, for eviction and go. for non-payment. A case for eviction for a sitting tenant. Is there a separate fee to file a case for non-payment of rent? Uh, we need to look that up. Mark, we'll come back to you. Well, actually, let me answer that. So okay. I said earlier it was it's three and a half percent of the claimed amount. So if you're making a claim for eviction and non-payment of defaulting 
rent, then basically making two claims. You have to pay 3.5% for each. For eviction, the cap is 20000 For monetary claims, such as the default rent, it's 15000 And the cap, collective cap, is 35000 Okay, Mark, there's the answer for you. Uh, legal questions, very quickly. We've got room for one, perhaps, uh, before we finish at 5 o'clock. 4001 or via the free app, 423 to call. Uh, the Free Zone Authority that we have our business with has rules that prevent clinical firms on the ground floor from having outdoor signs if they are not a branch of an international company or retail, unless they're above 5,000 square feet in size. This person's saying, I think this is discriminatory, doesn't make any sense. We can have signs if we're selling food, but not if we have a clinic it's difficult to understand is it worth taking a legal approach this person honestly no because this obviously comes from if if you're reading the regulations correctly this comes from the government itself and the government certainly is free to set whatever requirements and limitations they deem fit and in this particular case if that's a requirement that's the requirement of that particular licensing authority and therefore you're bound by them so you're only I guess your alternatives are move from a ground floor elsewhere uh, or or move to a different free zone if they don't have the same limitations and if we could just go back quickly, um, I know Phil texting quite a long time ago, he was asking about the tobacco and excise tax. And he said, how is this going to impact? He said, assuming tobacco has excise tax, and maybe that, how would this affect bringing tobacco back to the UK, for example, where there is a limit um, on the amount allowed to be brought in due to buying from a country previously selling without tax? So obviously, in the past, this would have been without tax. In the future, it will be. Could there be an issue over that? Uh, that depends on the country, on the laws of the country in, into which these goods will be brought in. It may be that they will reduce the uh, the, do, uh, the limitations, or it may be that uh, it will remain the same. It really is, is difficult to tell because it's it's much less about the UAE, but it's more about the other countries which are recipients of those goods. There was a question in from Gito, and this is far too broad to go into now. I don't know if you've seen this, Ludmilla, on the text. What's the status of the bankruptcy law? And how does it work? We can't address that at the moment, but it's something that maybe we can consider, uh, I certainly guess, for next week. Yes, but in, in very short, uh, uh, the bankruptcy law is effective. It, it, has, it has come into effect, and that was, I believe, last year. It's very complicated, so I mm. can't really answer it in, in less than probably an hour, <laughs> but it, it already is in the books. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcast at DubaiEye1038.com.